Welcome to Sierra Week Conversations, a new video and podcast series bringing you insights with impact into energy, economics, and a changing world in the COVID-19 era. I'm your host, Dan Jurgen. Today's episode is with Lawrence Summers, former U.S. Treasury Secretary. In this episode, Larry tackles some of the toughest public policy issues facing both the United States and the world community. This episode is moderated by my colleague, Carles Pasquale, Senior Vice President of Global Energy at IHS Market. Enjoy the conversation. Hello, this is Carlos Pasquale, and welcome to this session of Sierra Week Conversations presented by IHS Market. This is an exclusive series that allows us to have a conversation with people who are leaders in energy and public policy and finance and academia to tackle some of the great historic transformation. The energy transition in front of us. And of course, we're tackling the questions related to the pandemic and recovery from it. Today, we have an opportunity to speak with Larry Summers, former Secretary of the Treasury, President Obama's head of the National Economic Council, former president of Harvard University, and still a professor at Harvard. Larry, pleasure to have you. Thank you so much for joining. Good to be with you, Carlos. Um, Larry and I want to take you through a conversation that travels through some of the toughest public policy problems that we face today regarding opening our economy. What is a just recovery? And what does this imply internationally? And Larry, maybe if I could, I'd love to be able to do this in the spirit of Alberto Aracena. You recently wrote a very moving op-ed about Alberto who passed away, formerly the head of the economics department at Harvard, and really one of the founders of the School of Political Economy. So in the spirit of Alberto, um, let me jump into the first question, Larry, which is I think the toughest public policy problem that we face today. How do we assess the trade-offs between opening our economy and the prevention of a second wave of the, of the pandemic? How do we think through this issue? I actually think there's less conflict than many people uh, suppose. Because the truth is that if we blow it on the health side, it's actually going to do a lot of damage economically. If you look at the experience of Sweden relative to the other Nordic economies, the Swedes have opened up, but they actually haven't had better economic performance, more job creation, more GDP growth, any of it. If you look at the experience of different U.S. states, there's remarkably little evidence that the states that opened up first have had more rapid growth in retail sales or more rapid resumption of employment than the states that closed uh, down. And so the reality is that taking a chance on the health side doesn't really accomplish as much for the economy as you might at first think, because people who are apprehensive, even if they're allowed to go out, don't go out. I think about what constrains me here in this small town in uh, Cape Cod, where I've been living. I'm not constrained by what the governor says. I'm constrained by what feels safe and sensible to me. So I think this whole idea of a conflict is uh, rather uh, overdone. I think we need uh, to be doing much more than we are around protecting against the pandemic directly. 
it is crazy for Congress to be spending multi-trillions of dollars on economic stimulus and not putting 2% of that money into the testing and the contact tracing that could um, allow more activity with uh, less uh, spread. So often economics is the dismal science and it's really about painful trade-offs. But in this case, I actually think the right investments in uh, healthcare will and health, health measures will enable us to have a more prosperity and more health as well. And indeed, I think safe and sensible are good watchwords because people are going to make choices based on what they recognize as safe and sensible for them. We, Larry, we've also had this debate over, uh, over letters, uh, U-shaped, V-shaped, W-shaped, L-shaped, um, some call a Nike, Nike swoosh of what the recovery will actually look like. Can you give us your insights? Um, is, is a V-shaped, let's even start with that. Is a V-shaped recovery, a quick recovery, something which you think is realistic in the current environment? So I think there's also a K-shaped aspect where this recovery is gonna be very good for some people and much less good for other people. And you see that in the number of jobless claims and uh, what's happened to uh, the stock market. So I think generalizing to talk about one economy and one recovery can be a mistake. I think we're seeing, um, we saw a collapse. We started seeing bounce back. Bounce back, I think, came a little earlier than we thought it would, and it's come a little stronger than we thought it would. But I don't think we're going to bounce anywhere near back to normal until we have a vaccine. And so some point, this rapid bounce back is gonna give way to a rather slow uh, slog. So I guess you could use the swoosh uh, metaphor. I also think that unless we're careful, we've got some pretty substantial W risk. You see that in uh, the fact that even in Beijing, you've seen an increase in the number of cases, records being hit in uh, Florida and, tex and Texas. Uh, so, Beware of, uh, beware of W, look out uh, for K, enjoy the V aspect while it lasts, but it's gonna give way to something much more horizontal before too terribly long, unless we're able to find a vaccine or therapy. Let's explore a couple of those things. First of all, the K um, and the differential impact. In terms of who gets hurt the worst, is it the poor? So far, all the evidence is in that direction. So far, the evidence on uh, differential mortality uh, experience, on morbidity experience, on increases in unemployment, on losses of income, uh, it is very much uh, members of minority groups. It is very much those with less rather than more education. It is very much those who had lower incomes before all this uh, started. And if it weren't for the fact that, and this is in some ways what's most morally troubling, if it weren't for the fact that some of those who are poor have no choice but to do dangerous work, the exacerbation of income gaps would be uh, even larger. And I think the visible image of uh, those who are delivering and those who are being delivered to um, is gonna cause a lot of people to be thinking as they vote this November about who will deliver for 
uh, them. And that suggests to me that we may have a rather volatile and uh, polarized electorate. We said we were going to touch on the question of a just recovery, and indeed there's been a disproportionate impact on African Americans and minorities. And obviously the streets of the United States have been alive with protests. Should that be signaling to us, Larry, that there is a deeper problem of poverty and inequality that's intertwined with social justice that needs to be part of what we're thinking about in the recovery strategy? I think we always come out of crises in a different path than the trend line we were on before the crisis. That was certainly true with what the New Deal left behind in America. That was certainly true coming out of the 1960s when we were left with uh, a Medicare program, we were left with a set of civil rights uh, initiatives, when we were left with uh, the environmental uh, movement institutionalized into uh, government. And I think this is a similarly dramatic uh, time and it's too early to know exactly what the changes will be, but I would be surprised if we were not looking towards a rather dramatic period in terms of new public policies. And my hope would certainly be that those will be new public policies that will ultimately be conservative in the sense that they will preserve our market-based democratic system. But in order to be ultimately conservative, we'll be proximately bold in terms of extending the obligations of employers, in terms of changing the strength of uh, the social safety net we have woven. Indeed, if one looks at the highest rates of infection throughout the world, it's not a great propaganda for the populist agenda throughout the world at the same time. Um, this, the stimulus package, about 15% of GDP, is that big enough? Is it strong enough? And, and in particular, regarding small business and the service sector, is it hitting where it needs to be to give that backbone of the economy the ability to rise up? I think it was big enough and strong enough. And the question now is whether it will be long enough. Mm -hmm. And that depends upon whether in the next month, Congress acts and acts to continue unemployment insurance, acts to support state and local governments, acts to uh, do something to meet the challenges of uh, tenants, both uh, residential and uh, non-residential. Uh, and we'll, we don't yet know uh, the answer uh, to that. I think if we're able to support demand overall uh, in uh, the economy, we're able to maintain a robust uh, financial system, there'll be more change and there'll be more volatility in the small business sector than there has been uh, traditionally, but I think we'll make our way through. And in general, I'd rather see us focusing on meeting the needs of people uh, rather than focusing on, biz on particular businesses uh, as a category. I think it's very hard to target business without getting the kinds of situations that we saw with the Los Angeles Lakers and the Aspen Institute 
the Ritz-Carlton Hotels, Ruth Steakhouse, and all of those were receiving assistance. And in the meantime, Larry, the stock market continues to march to recovery, uh, despite the underlying economic factors. Why? It's certainly not what I would have uh, predicted. Looking at it, I increasingly think there's a difference between the S&P economy and the real economy. The S&P 500 companies employ less than 10% of the American uh, workforce. They do a substantial amount of business uh, abroad. In many cases, they're not very labor intensive in their production. And some of them are the large tech companies that in many ways are going to gain from our increased isolation uh, in our homes. And if you take all of that uh, together, you're um, looking at perhaps 30 or 40% of the stock market. And so if you have 30 or 40% of the stock market that's really set up to benefit, um, or at least do fine through COVID, you have monetary and financial policies that are directed at goosing the whole stock market, you're gonna start to understand why the stock market as a whole looks reasonably robust. If you look at cyclical companies, the kinds of companies that traditionally go up and down in recessions, their stock market values are down pretty substantially. It's just that they're a smaller share of the market than they used to be. So let's move from the stock market back to the agenda of um, what a fair recovery is. And increasingly, a lot of rhetoric is focused on rebuilding better. And generally, that's focused around climate change and sustainability. When we look at the stimulus demands of the recovery, should climate change be part of those considerations? Yes, absolutely. Look, we're going to be borrowing money on an unprecedented scale. And the single most important principle about debt is that how good debt is depends upon how it's going to be uh, paid back and whether the borrowing is being put to a use that will support uh, the paying back. If I think about my obligations to my children's generation and to my grandchildren when I have them, I think they will condemn me much more harshly for having been part of a generation that doesn't protect the earth from fundamental change in the terms of life through climate change than they will for their being bequeathed the obligation to pay back a bunch of government bonds that have an interest rate of 1% uh, on them. And so I think we do need to borrow, but I think we need to borrow to do things that are meeting obligations to our children, repairing a decaying infrastructure, maintaining a functioning government, uh, civil, uh, civil service, making adequate investments in a learning, training, and job finding uh, system, maintaining America's uh, scientific and technological uh, leadership, and doing our part with respect to uh, the climate change issue. So absolutely, I think we do need uh, to be investing in renewables, investing in uh, energy efficiency, 
thinking about the broad public infrastructures. I think of things like uh, high-speed power lines that are necessary for those um, technologies to have their maximum positive effect. And indeed, it was interesting to see how after 2009 and some of the measures that were taken on renewable energy, particularly on wind, became bipartisan issues, especially given the states, for example, of Iowa and Texas and that, that agenda. Another part of this just recovery issue is, is privacy, in a sense. And I, I was struck by some of, the, um, uh, some of the analysis that you've done, which has indicated that the pandemic is costing the United States uh, $80 billion a day. $80 billion a week, in fact. week, I'm sorry, $80 billion a week. And that if there's anything that we can do to be able to, um, to save an additional day, um, to provide some relief, it's obviously worth the cost. And you, you mentioned earlier the issue of testing, but even the more controversial question in the United States has been contact tracing and the use of cell phone technology as they've done in South Korea or Taiwan or other places that's made such a difference. And how, how should we evaluate something like this that could be so critical to be able to contain the pandemic? I'm not an expert on uh, the details and nuances of privacy. I do believe that there always should be limitations on unaccountable power. And so the regulatory frameworks within which some of our largest technology firms operate, I think do require uh, scrutiny. It's that way with any new industry. I think the Clinton administration was right to legislate in the direction of a presumption of permission and internet freedom. But I think 25 years uh, later, when they're at a, those, those companies are at a scale that would have been unimaginable uh, during uh, the Clinton administration. We do need to look at the legal and regulatory frameworks, uh, Carlos. But I would hope that we would find ways of using technology, using technology carefully to protect uh, privacy, but using technology to facilitate uh, contact tracing. And it would surprise me if the right answer was to ignore the information that's generated for the benefit of advertisers routinely by our telephones as we go about our business. That's a good way of putting it. Let me take you to the international agenda, Larry, and something that you've been passionately involved with in the past, and one of those is international poverty. And if we look at Africa, many developing countries that have 40, 50, 60% of their economy in the informal sector, for people, if they don't work, they don't get paid and they don't survive. And if they do work, perhaps they die. What kind of measures would you advise developing economies to think about on how they deal with this situation? And what do we need to be prepared to do globally to be able to respond? I think at a minimum, we need to be able to do what we did after 2009 and strengthen the capacity of the global financial institutions to channel substantial sums of money uh, to Africa and to the world's poorest countries. We need to establish frameworks in which debt relief 
can uh, be provided and provided on a substantial uh, scale. We need uh, to, to the maximum extent possible, keep markets open so that uh, sales can take place and trade can uh, continue and those countries can be enabled to prosper. We need to invest in the relevant technologies, whether it's testing, whether it's vaccines, whether it's therapies. Those aren't things that any one country can do on its own. We will have a vaccine at some point. It's not self-actualizing that Chad will get itself successfully vaccinated. And that's gonna be an important responsibility for the international community. So I think we need to renew the very idea of international community. Uh, you know this better than I, having had a distinguished career as a US ambassador. Um, exactly the wrong way to think about international relations and foreign policy is as a zero sum game where we can't win without somebody else losing. We need to reconceptualize it again as a country as being a positive something where it's our enlightened self-interest in many cases to help others. That doesn't mean we should be patsies. There's a lot that's wrong in the world where the United States needs to be very insistent and there need to be consequences for people who fall outside of international uh, norms. But we can never responsibly lose sight in the fact that foreign policy is as much about getting mutual contributions for mutual interest as it is balancing power or trying to win zero-sum games. And are international institutions prepared and able to do that? I think international institutions are the property creation and manifestation of nations. And so I don't think it's meaningful to ask the question, are international institutions prepared to do it? I think the question is, is it meaningful? Are the major nations prepared to do what's necessary? And I'm not sure they are. But without will on the part of the major nations, it's hard to imagine what international institutions can do. After all, the United Nations is just that. It is the nations united. And there is no meaningful UN will apart from uh, the will of the nations that comprise the United Nations. And the same thing is true of the World Health Organization or the international financial institutions. That's an eloquent way of stating it. Um, let's move to the United States and China. And I'm gonna ask you to uh, relay a, a rowboat a story that you, I heard you tell, um, but um, one of the questions that one has to ask in particular at a time like this when that kind of international cooperation is so fundamental, do you think it's possible for the United States and China to in fact row together to actually get to a vaccine? Let's start with the robot story. Uh, look, I think the right way for the United States and China to think of themselves is as uh, two individuals who don't really have that much time for each other or mutual compatibility in a two-oared two, two lifeboat in a turbulent sea a long way from the shore. 
and their feelings about each other aren't really that uh, important. Their ability to inflict pain on one another aren't really that, isn't really that important. What matters is whether they can row together uh, back to uh, the shore. And I think it's managed grudging respect that is uh, necessary for the United States and China to find a way uh, forward rather than some kind of affectionate partnership, which I think is utopian, or some kind of Cold War, which I think risks becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy that might not even uh, stay uh, cold. So that's the uh, broad way in which I would see this. And I think what we need is responsible dialogue in which people make judgments um, about what interests and what aspects of the other country's behavior are most salient for them and focus the dialogue on uh, those aspects. Larry, um, you've shared a lot of wisdom. And one final question, um, asking you to share a little bit more, particularly with the business leaders that are going to be listening to, to this conversation. You've been through the Asian financial crisis. You've been through the great financial crisis um, in senior positions both times. You have unique perspectives. What would you share with business leaders as they look at this period of uncertainty and as they develop strategies for moving ahead? I guess I'd say uh, three things. First, uh, as President Cedillo said to me during the Mexican uh, financial uh, crisis, markets overreact, therefore policy has to uh, overreact. In general, when people are saying, well, it's just the market, it's going to be okay, they're usually about to make a mistake. And so it's, in general, better to think about overreacting uh, than it is uh, to think about uh, underreacting. Second, um, keep one's eye on, uh, the, long, on the long run. Uh, rather than on uh, the uh, short run, because tomorrow's short run is today's uh, long run. And many people get themselves in trouble by every three months doing, what, doing and saying what seems best for the next three months, but then they have a problem when uh, the three-month interval uh, ends. And that's particularly a point about rhetoric. Uh, you don't add genuine confidence to a situation with false forecasts of uh, optimism. Great leaders um, express confidence that there's a way ultimately through, but don't sugarcoat uh, the path uh, that uh, we're going to be on. And uh, the third thing, uh, Carlos, is we mostly succeed together or fail together. And remembering mutuality of interest, whether it is firms and uh, their workers, whether it is multiple firms in uh, the same industry having to deal with a common problem, whether it is government and uh, business within uh, a country, 
whether it is different countries in uh, the world. When times are tough, people tend to shorten the horizon and pull in uh, the circle. And both are mistakes. And the people who are ultimately uh, remembered best by history are the people who find uh, the strength to widen the circle of mutual interests and to lengthen uh, the uh, horizon during a moment of crisis. Larry, thank you for your eloquence and for stressing that importance of neutrality. It reminds one of Martin Luther King's statement of being all part of the same cut of cloth. Um, what also struck me was the importance that you placed on differentiating, of recognizing that different people, different countries are affected differently by this pandemic, and that presents different challenges. We have to, we have to understand, respect, and look out for those that are suffering and dealing with a much harder, harsher transition than others. So even in those circumstances when we can enjoy that V-shaped recovery, we have to recognize that there are some people who are in that K-shape that are going down or others in W-shape that are going through a longer transition. And that requires smartness and agil agility in the way that we conduct public policy. Larry, it's always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for joining us in the Sierra Week conversation. Thank you. Hi, everyone. Dan again. Many thanks to Larry and Carlos for this fascinating and penetrating discussion. And thanks to our listeners for tuning in. Coming up next time on Sierra Week Conversations, Andy Jassy, CEO of Amazon Web Services, and then Amin Nasser, President and CEO of Saudi Aramco. For our complete video series and previous episodes, please visit us online at sarahweek.com.